Thank you. Thank you very much, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Packwell. This is a program where we take a look at the Word of God, and especially in the last year or so, we've been focusing on how we use Scripture and look at it to pray and find ourselves meditating on these mysteries about Christ. Today, we're going to look closely at our Lord Jesus' second trial before Pilate. And we'll take a look and see how Pilate focuses on the political expedience in the way he deals with Jesus. He doesn't care about truth. He cares about politics. And this is a very important part of what he does. As you, I'm sure, know, we are going through my book, uh, Wheat and Tares, uh, which you can still get if you go to EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog, where it's item number 81098. And today, if you're following with us, we'll be starting our discussion on page 125. Of course, if you would like to call in with questions or comments, uh, you can do so during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call us in North America by calling 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that does not work. Uh, 800 numbers don't work outside. So you can call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. 205-271-2980. Or you can email us by writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com or participate with the show on YouTube. So as we take a look at this second part of our Lord's trial before Pontius Pilate, after he'd already been to uh, see Herod, we start in Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 13. It says there that Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Now, this is a very important uh, issue. Um, the priests and leaders had falsely accused Jesus of political sedition, that they tried to say that he was fomenting an insurrection among the people and such. And this was um, something that wasn't true. And it's what's important about that is that he... Uh, or they have actually changed the charges against him. 
when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, they accused him of claiming to be God. Now that he, they're on bringing him to trial before Pontius Pilate, they changed the charges. And remember how it was illegal for them to even declare him guilty at night. Jewish tradition and law precluded having a trial at night. It had to be during the day so other people could know and other witnesses, all the possible witnesses, especially in a capital crime trial. Those witnesses had to be available. They didn't do that. And then they completely changed the charges when they changed venue to another court and go to Pilate. So that's what they, what they do. And in the face of this, we see that in verse 16, Pilate says, there's nothing wrong. He didn't do anything, but I will chastise him and release him. Now, by chastise, they don't just mean giving him a good, solid talking to. No, they mean to, to scourge him. That's exactly what it meant in uh, his parlance. Now, of course, just to keep some uh, notions clear in regard to uh, the, the other Gospels in this regard, uh, we can certainly point out that St. Matthew did not mention Jesus going to Herod, but he does describe this second stage of the trial before Pilate in even more detail than St. Luke does. So, you know, this is one of the things about any kind of report. When somebody looks at an event, they'll highlight different elements of it. No one person focuses on exactly the same details as another person. One person might see an accident and say, oh, it was a red and white uh, Toyota. Uh, no, I saw the license plate number. They don't even look at the color or the make. They might not remember, you know, that it was a Corolla or something. Um, they would look at the license plate number. Now, are they wrong? No, they're both right. But they're just looking at different facts. That's how life is. And different individuals look at different facts. Uh, if you don't believe me, try getting your kid to explain how something got broken. <laughs> Especially if his siblings are in the room. But at any rate, uh, so St. Matthew has different details. And it's, uh, again, some greater detail uh, than St. Luke. First, he talks about how the chief priests and elders act up because it says in Matthew 27, verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. So Jesus didn't say anything. And this is, uh, we, we don't know what the specific accusations were. It doesn't say in Matthew what the accusations were. St. Luke has Roman officials more in mind. He's thinking about what they would take a look at as something to make 
a person uh, liable to the death penalty. So he's more alert to some of that. St. Matthew is much more alert to the fulfillment of prophecy, and he wants to highlight what he remembers about how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. So we can take a look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So that's the, you know, Jesus' silence in the face of these accusations is the main point for St. Matthew. And it's not the kind of silence that a guilty person has when they don't have a good answer. Um, again, Mrs. Paquin's children frequently said, I don't know how it happened. Um, this is, uh, that's not that kind of silence. It, it's rather um, the, the silence of the Lord's faithful servant, the, the one who is doing what he's supposed to do. He's fully aware that he is suffering for the sake of the salvation of the human race. This is not just about uh, it being unfair to Jesus. He realizes that he is like the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who's taking this suffering and he remains silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. So that's what's going on. Also, his silence comes from a certain type of strength. Uh, there is a type of strength from a man who knows his own incapacity. Uh, he also is aware that his listeners are incapable of accepting the truth. No matter what you say to them, they won't believe you. And in this, he is fulfilling Psalm 38, verses 12 to 14. In Psalm 38, verse 12, it says, Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a dumb man who does not open his mouth. Yea, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. He knows that in the face of the decision that was made against him to oppress him and to kill him, that you just cannot come up with an answer. And it's someone who is well aware of this that, and remains firm in realizing that his suffering will have a mission beyond his own experience, a mission that is grounded in the salvation of the world. That is the strength that the uh, Lord has. And this is something that he lives out to fulfill those Old Testament prophecies. Now, Pilate tries to get him to speak 
You see in Matthew 27, verse 13, Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor wondered greatly. Now, when he, the, the, being a governor who judges a lot of cases, that was a big job in Roman governor's daily life to judge various criminal cases that were too difficult for the lower courts and make sure that Roman ideas of justice would be lived out. Uh, he would be accustomed to seeing lots of criminals and knowing how they try to cop a plea, they try to do various promises that uh, I, I, I never did that and I would never do it and all kinds of things that excuses that people come up with. And he would be like a judge through any period of time, including our own period of time. Good and wise judges can take a look at somebody and understand exactly the, what they're up to. That's one of the reasons people used to like to watch Judge Judy when she was on TV. She had a certain you know, understanding of what was going on and cut through all the special pleading that went on. She was really good at that, and we admired her for that. So Pilate would be like that, and he asks Jesus, but Jesus remains silent. He doesn't answer, and he just stays amazed. Uh, and in the face of Jesus' silence, Pilate is less and less willing to execute Jesus. He realizes that there's more to this than meets his eye. Now, it's precisely at this point that we hear about uh, a prisoner. Um, in Matthew 27, verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, feast of Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So this is uh, some of the, the, the word episemus means famous if it's positive, but in a negative case, it means uh, notorious. And that's what's here. And, um, it's interesting to see the different attitudes towards Barabbas. Certainly to the Romans, he was notorious. Um, and he, Pilate offers them a choice that he had. In fact, St. Mark kind of makes this a little bit more clear when he says in Mark 15, verse 7, that among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. There was a man called Barabbas. So Barabbas is a killer. And this is one of the uh, things that they uh, you know, hear there. And Pilate gives them this choice because he realizes that, in fact, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, were jealous of Jesus. And they did not like having the crowd listen to him instead of to them. 
And that goes on all the time. I mean, that that happens in political campaigns all the time. You know, people make all sorts of statements, as we'll be seeing with commercials on TV about various uh, senators and governors and such. So he realizes what's going on. And it's precisely at this point that um, he gets this choice that Pilate's wife sends him a warning message. And uh, because the people are crying out, not this man, but Barabbas. As John mentions that in John 18, verse 40. Uh, it mentions that Barabbas was a robber. You know, he, the people want Barabbas, and the Romans don't really want to let this murderer, rebel, and robber go. They don't want that to happen. So this is uh, some of the crisis going on. And as he does that, his, Pilate's wife sends him a message that, uh, and she says, have nothing to do with that man, with that righteous man, excuse me, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Um, uh, for I have suffered much over him today in a dream. Now, ancient people had put a lot of stock in dreams. Uh, you know, I was recently uh, reading about uh, Julius Caesar and his enemy, uh, General Pompey the Great. And uh, this man had a dream that he was going to be talking about politics to Pompey. And not long after he told the crew of his ship that he uh, was going to had that dream, Pompey showed up and people said, you better take Pompey. Your dream meant that you should do this. So this was something they put a lot of stock in. And you see that throughout Roman literature, that, you know, believing in your dreams is very important. And, you know, it's interesting in this Gospel of St. Matthew that this is the sixth dream that people had that was a way for the Lord to communicate a message. Um, you know, we, we see uh, that back in chapter one that St. Joseph had gotten uh, uh, dreams, the uh, Magi had gotten dreams, um, all of that, especially in chapter one and two. This is the only dream that is not listened to. All the other ones they listened to. The Magi obeyed, St. Joseph obeyed, he uh, went into Egypt, he left Egypt because of the dreams. This is the one, uh, and all those dreams saved the child Jesus' life. At the one time the dream is disobeyed, our Lord loses his life. I think that's worth uh, noting. So the chief priests are, you know, went around and they persuaded people. You see this in Matthew 27, verse 20. They persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor tried again. Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said Barabbas. And, you know, 
Jesus was still in custody and Pilate very foolishly listened to the crowd, even though he knew Barabbas was guilty and Jesus was innocent. But this is where his ability to reason with the people um, fails. And at that point, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. This is remarkable because Jewish law allows people to hang criminals on a tree after they were dead. You executed him, then you could hang him in a tree. It was against Jewish law to kill somebody by hanging them on a tree. And here the chief priests and elders called for death by hanging on a cross. That is very, very remarkable. One other little point that I would bring up, a lot of times we don't pay attention to this, but what does Barabbas mean in Aramaic? Bar is son, Abba is father. What they did is they took the son of the father, Barabbas, instead of the son of God the Father. That's the difference there. And you see that their choice for a pseudo son of the Father. He might have been called son of the Father, largely be good possibility because he was not legitimate. Whereas Jesus is the son of God the Father and is the truth itself and virtue and legitimacy itself. And that contrast should not be lost as they make this choice to crucify Jesus. We'll take a break, come back in a couple minutes with uh, more about this passage as well as some of your comments and questions, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, we are continuing on with this second half of the trial under Pilate and how the people cried for Barabbas. And Pilate was responsible for dispensing justice in his section of the Roman Empire. That was one of the things that the Roman governors and procurators and such prided themselves on, that they were there to bring a, a sense of justice and fair play to all the different parts of the world. That's why they thought it was worth being under the Roman Empire. Not that everybody else agreed with them, but they thought that. And 
Pilate has full responsibility here. He listens to the crowd and he takes the murderous and robbing and you know, rebellious Barabbas uh, over the innocent Jesus. And he was afraid of a riot. Um, he didn't, he gave in to the crowd because he didn't want to get them upset with him. And plenty of times crowds have taken over from leaders. So we see in Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. You know, he recognizes that, you know, this is someone that he, that's innocent. Um, and, you know, he just tries to wash off response, wash my hands. But we still use that as a phrase. A lot of people don't even know where that comes from because they're not allowed to read the Bible in school anymore. So they don't know that that comes from Pontius Pilate washing his hands before, uh, you know, as a way to not take responsibility. So this is something. And what we see here is that by them taking responsibility, they're fulfilling what Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 21, verse 42. This is one of the parables he spoke. He said to the crowds at that time, just a few days before this, in fact, have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. He let them know you know, a few days ahead of time in this parable that the crowd that seeks his false condemnation will lose their place. Uh, and just as he had also warned them, you know, just uh, a few days before, that if they didn't turn to him in faith, that their nation would be destroyed. So in this reject rejection of Christ, we see that being prepared. Now, we see at this point that Pontius Pilate released Barabbas and he ordered Jesus to be scourged. In Matthew 27, verse 26, he released for them Barabbas and having, Jesus, uh, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And this, all four Gospels describe the scourging. All of them do. And we also see that, again, the soldiers, for the fourth time, a group of soldiers, this time Roman soldiers, take it upon themselves to mock Jesus. We see in Matthew 27, verse 27 to 31, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet cloak, uh, robe upon him and plating a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
And they sped upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. That, you know, this is something that uh, Herod's soldiers had also done in Luke 23, verse 11. Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and arraying him in gorgeous apparel, sent him back to Pilate. This was not something that Pilate told the soldiers to do. They took it upon themselves to do that. Uh, and they went ahead and, you know, did this mockery and extra torment in addition to the scourging. And then we see John brings out a detail that the others don't mention in John 19, verses 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no crime in him. Total agreement with him being innocent in Matthew and the other Gospels, so also in John. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man, or sometimes we uh, use the Latin translation of those remember the Vulgate, ecce homo, behold the man. This is how he presents Jesus. And instead of being compassionate, the chief priests and the officers and Jewish leaders cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate tries to get them to do it, says, crucify him yourselves, or I find no crime in him. And the Jews insist, they said, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. Now they go back to their original accusation that he claimed to be divine. That frightened Pilate all the more. He took Jesus inside the praetorium, the, the, the inner building of his court for a more private conversation. And uh, when he entered the praetorium again, uh, he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, do you, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? Notice Jesus' answer. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, he doesn't exonerate Pilate. Pilate is sinful in doing this unjust act. But it's a greater sin by those who had falsely accused him and handed him over. And... This is how the trial ends. You know, with Pilate then becoming convinced of his innocence and Pilate sought to release him. We see there in John 19, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. Now they go back to the political accusation. 
When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down at the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, Hebrew Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, that's about noon, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate gives them a chance and says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he had no choice. He handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. In this, we see that Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who will be the judge of every single soul that was ever created at conception, and that he will judge every single soul that came into existence. Now he is handed over to false accusations and death. What we'll do next week is start the next chapter in this book and take a look at the various steps along the way of the cross and see how that applies to each of us and how each of us in various ways can find our own lives in Christ's way of the cross. We'll stop there and just go to some of our questions. We have a question here from our studio. I have a nice group of folks from uh, Louisiana, uh, a lot of them from Baton Rouge and its environs. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Denham Springs. Good to well, have you. Watson. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you very and, much. And uh, what's your question? My question is, I have been curious and upset for years each time I read the scripture where Jesus was alone at his crucifixion, basically, other than Mary. And where was Peter? Where was Peter? I mean, Jesus gave Peter, asked, gave Peter, he built... The church mm -hmm. upon Peter gave mm -hmm. him all this power, and, and they knew him. They knew what he was capable of doing, who he was. Where were they? They were hiding. They were absolutely cowardly. Something our Lord had said to them they would be. Would you not have, knowing what you, you know now, having known what they knew, would you not have given your life for Jesus? Frankly, I would hope I would. <laughs> I would hope that I would take that risk. I but, don't you know, it. apparently um, somebody like you may be better able to resonate with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother James, and uh, Joses and Salome, the Blessed Virgin Mary, these women, and then the very young John the Apostle, who did stay with him. Was Mary, and it's I'm not sorry. the kind of courage we see, but think about how many you know, times when people hear the church attacked, and they say nothing to defend it. When, they, uh, when the faith is attacked and they don't 
defend the church and the faith. How many times do we have politicians who claim to be good practicing Catholics who in order to get votes will do everything possible they can to make sure that innocent children in the womb are killed? Is that any different? And some of them have plenty of security and they still would rather win votes than protect Jesus' little ones. They would rather do that than remember whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. They don't want to apply that part of it. They don't mind feeding the poor and clothing the sick, especially if they use our tax money to do it. But when it comes to protecting the least of Jesus' brothers and sisters, they run faster than Peter and the apostles. And all of us have to constantly be alert that, you know, I'm not going to defend bad things that people inside the church have done, but I will stand for Jesus. I will stand for the faith. I will stand for the fact that the church is our Lord's bride. And I would hope that I would stand with the tens of thousands of people who are being martyred just this past year. Well, I think this last year was over 5,000 martyred in Nigeria. The largest Catholic population in Africa but over 5,000 were martyred you know, just last year. And they've been doing that a lot. I would hope I would be able to stand with those courageous Christians. There, you know, you have uh, Fulani and other radical groups, uh, Al-Qaeda and um, uh, Daesh, um, I forget what Daesh is in English, but it's one of the terrorist groups uh, Boko Haram is another. These are terrorist groups that are looking for priests. Uh, one priest I know, they put a bunch of tires around him so he couldn't move and then set the tires and the priest on fire, kill him, uh, burning him alive. You know, what a horrible way to die. I wouldn't do that to uh, an animal. You know, varmints you wouldn't do that to. Uh, but people do that. So, we have to hope that we stand firm in the faith more so. That's, that would be the question that we have to try to answer. Well, I have an email from Francis in Indiana. Um, it says, Father Mitch, Jesus clearly calls adultery a sin. Fiducia supplicans describes it in other acts as an irregular situation. Is Fiducia supplicans saying adultery is not a sin? Jesus got it wrong. Why reject his words? Jesus, I don't, you know, uh, having read it, uh, read, read the document, I, they're not saying that uh, adultery is not a sin. It's a vice. In fact, it's a mortal sin. Now, they don't use that. What they're trying to deal with is people who are living in uh, relationships outside of grace. So 
when somebody is divorced and remarried, for instance, and they are uh, you know, not able to be married, so they're not living inside holy matrimony, and therefore they're living in mortal sin, objectively speaking. And, uh, or if they are just not even trying to be married, they're just living together. What fiducia sublicans wants is that we would be able to bless them to come to God's mercy, not to bless them to say, oh, that's nice that you're doing that. That's not the point that was being made in um, uh, fiducia sublicans. The point is that you, you want to be able to pray for them, give them a blessing, that they would seek God's mercy and find some strength to be able to move towards regularizing their marriage. Um, for a lot of folks in these circumstances, um, it is, there's a lot of steps that they have to take. Um, sometimes they've gotten into relationships that are not proper and they need to go through various steps. And they're not always ready to live in a chaste way with somebody. Well, I would want to bless them and pray that they be able to live chastity apart from each other and then move towards a conversion to see the importance of holy marriage. And not only see it, but see, actually seek out marriage, whether they're a couple who were never married or whatever. So this is uh, something. And, you know, some irregular relationships cannot be rectified, you know, and the fiducia supplicans makes it very clear that uh, same-sex couples can never be regular. That's never going to be marriage, never was, never is not now, never can be. Uh, marriage, but you pray for them also to learn, you know, that again, God's mercy and grace and that they would be able to live a life. It's hard to, for folks in those kind of situations to be able to make that transition. But sometimes if they live long enough, they might see that this is a futile and is not the way that brings them joy and peace, and that they might eventually come to seek authentic friendship that doesn't have the sexual component to it, but is the kind of love and friendship that serves God rather than oneself, and <coughs> be able to make uh, a change. So it's, it's seeking that kind of prayer. And that's why, you know, when people come up at the communion line and they cross their hands, I, I can't, you know, give them communion. And they know it. And that's good. They shouldn't receive communion if they are in a state of mortal sin. But I'll give them a blessing to help them come to closer to God and rectify the situation. That would be our goal. We don't want them to stay where they are. We want them to find conversion. And that's the only reason I would ever want to bless somebody, to help bring them towards knowing God and following His ways. So, yeah, but no, it's not saying that adultery is ever fine, good, or not a sin. It's not. It is a mortal sin, okay?
All right, we'll take a break, come back with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Thank you, and welcome back. Now, first of all, be sure to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live when we'll speak with author and Islamic expert Raymond Ibrahim. He's here to discuss several historical saints and sinners who defended the Christian West against Islamic jihadist aggression. So we'll have some great discussions about his book and the content of it tomorrow night. So please join us and be ready with some of your questions. We have another question from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Uh, I'm uh, the pastor of Mac Conception Church in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Diocese oh, great of Baton to have Rouge. you. Good to have you. I know Denham Springs. So, <laughs> so what, what, what do you have as a question? Since we're talking about the trial of Jesus and looking at the role of Pontius Pilate in it, um, and him seeing what's going on with the chief priest, how familiar would have Pontius Pilate mm -hmm. been with Jewish tradition and mm -hmm. seeing what the chief priests were trying to get at in sure. using him? Sure. He, it, I would compare him to uh, a lot of uh, well-informed people in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> in this sense, Brooklyn, New York has some very important Jewish neighborhoods. And if you live there, of course you'll know a little bit of Yiddish, but you'll understand that on certain holy days, your neighbors can't visit, they can't, they walk to the synagogue, and a number of other things, you know, that and you'll converse with them about some of their cut. You might be invited to a bar mitzvah, a bris, and so on, weddings, and you'd be familiar just by being around it. Pilate had been procurator since 26 AD. So he would have been uh, in the, the country for a few years ahead of time. And by the city of Caesarea Maritima was his capital C. That's where he lived. He would come to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals. So he would know something about their customs. Um, and, you know, for instance, one of the things that Romans would do, uh, allegedly for safekeeping, they would have the high priest's vestments kept in the fortress Antonia. And they would bring it out only for the feast just to make sure everybody was, you know, not rioting. But he would know a lot about those kind of customs. So that was, and he uh, stayed in Herod's palace, 
which is not a casino, by the way. You've got to <laughs> make that clear to people from Louisiana. Uh, Herod's Palace was where Herod lived over on the southwest corner of the city. And you know, be familiar with the various customs that were built in, like the places for the ritual washing, stuff like that. So you would have familiarity. You know, detailed, no, but you would have familiarity. And then we have an email from Ebba, who is an EWTN media missionary. It says, Father Mitch, how do you feel about homosexuals being blessed? If a homosexual couple came to you for a blessing, would you give them one? I personally feel this is wrong and can lead to further confusion for these individuals who may then want to have a wedding. What do you think? Uh, Ebba. Uh, Ebba, a couple things. Um, you know, if a, a, a homosexual couple came asking for a blessing, I would want to know, oh, would it need blessed? You know, I'd want to find out about the, what, what they're looking for in a blessing. If it is in some way to approve of the kind of uh, relationship they have, I can't. I can't give that a blessing. If they say, look, you know, we're trying to find God in our lives, you know, we, you know we're, we're searching. Um, I have no trouble blessing. You know, it, it, that's where you enter into a conversation. And, you know, if you look, again, I urge you to actually read uh, Fiducia Supplicans to, to see that it says you may not do some sort of a blessing in front of the altar or in the church. You know, if they're in the communion line, you can just bless whoever comes up. Uh, they seek a blessing. Uh, we do that all the time. But, uh, you, you know, if they come in wedding garments and, and such, you may not. If it's some sort of wedding service, you may not bless. That's forbidden. That's forbidden by the document. And to, to make sure that it, we, we don't confuse marriage with these uh, same-sex unions. Um, and so that's something that we may not do. And so we have an obligation to also make sure that it is clear, you know, what we're doing. Um, because we want, I want them to be open to God's grace. My, I can't convert anybody. It's the grace of God the power of the Holy Spirit that converts anybody. And they need the blessing of God to be open to that grace of conversion. You know, I can give them the reasons for our faith and morals, but the conversion is something God effects by His grace. Then we have an email from Charbel. Uh, Dear Father Pacwa, in the story of Jesus' healing of, healing of the bleeding woman, it states that Jesus felt power go forth from himself. The passive way in which this is phrased gives me pause for thought. We would expect that Jesus, having full control of his divine power, uh, must will the healing of the woman before it occurs. Is this just an artifact of the translation from the original Greek, or does it have other implications? Would it be that his human will, being temporarily constrained, could not immediately perceive the woman's presence? Sharbal. Sharbal, there's an idiom that shows up throughout the Bible. It is oftentimes called the divine passive. 
In other words, what they will do, and being, I assume that you're Lebanese, and you may know this from Arabic as well, that the passive form of the verb is frequently used to indicate that God is doing it. That is, and even in the grammar books, we see it's called the divine passive for that reason, that the passive voice is used to indicate that this was God's action. And that's why it's being used in that place. And another important thing about it is that she was trying to be surreptitious. She was trying to sneak a blessing in there by touching the tassel on his garment. And this ends up being the basis for using not only first-class relics, but second-class relics. That the tassel that belongs to Christ is the means by which the healing is communicated. So having second-class relics goes to Christ himself. But the, pa the passive is the divine passive to show God is acting. Okay. All right. May the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have this network brought to you by you instead of by advertisers. So that means that we would ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and then we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless. Mm -hmm.